Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. Today's podcast is a lecture that I gave at a special event organized by the uh, University of Manitoba's uh, English Film and Theatre Students Association uh, in conjunction with the Arts Student Body Council, I believe, and the Arts Tribune, or at least, you know, by the editor of the Arts Tribune, um, uh, Michael Campbell. So I want to thank uh, Michael Campbell, the University of Manitoba, um, the Arts Tribune, the Arts Student Body Council, the English Film and Theatre Students Association uh, for not only inviting me to give this lecture, uh, but also for you know, allowing me uh, graciously to you know, post this for you. Uh, so I put the text of the lecture and this recording up online uh, as the show notes. So you can check those out at jonathanball.com slash leatherface. <laughs> so you know, you'll, you'll see why it's called Leatherface in a second. So again, jonathanball.com slash Leatherface uh, is where you will find uh, the text of this uh, lecture. Uh, and I also want uh, to note that you can additionally go to writingtherongway.com slash Leatherface. Uh, I'm, this is still a bit of a work in progress as I speak, although maybe when you're listening to this, it'll be flushed out. But I've taken uh, the podcast and most of the writing material, my writing folks material, uh, you know, stuff for writers, and I moved it uh, over to writingtherongway.com. So instead of redirecting to my site, writingtherongway.com now goes to a separate site. Uh, That's primarily focused around this podcast, and it's going to contain most of my material for writers. Uh, Right now, as I speak, this is, both sites are kind of mirroring each other, jonathanblow.com and writingtherongway.com look different, but they basically have a lot of the same material on them. And like I say, this podcast, you can go find on either site, jonathanblow.com slash leatherface or writingtherongway.com slash leatherface. Um, But in the future, those sites will really wildly diverge. I kind of wanted to have uh, two different sites, one more for readers, you know, people who like my work but maybe aren't writers um, or, you know, just want to just more read my creative writing. Uh, and then a separate site more focused for writers. Just, I think, you know, it'll, it'll better serve uh, my two audiences by kind of separating things out a little bit. Now, those sites will keep linking to one another in various ways. They're not totally separate or anything. Um, but I just want to let you know about that so that in the future, you kind of know which site to pay more attention to. Um, but like I say, uh, this podcast show notes is on either site, jonathanball.com or writingwaythewrongwaycom slash leatherface. Uh, with all that said, I just want to um, dive into the lecture here. The other thing I just quickly want to note is that um, at the end of this lecture, I read a sonnet uh, about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I wrote a s- number of sonnets about Leatherface. Uh, and if you go to that website, that sh- the show notes for this episode, jonathanbaud.com slash Leatherface, you can sign up to my newsletter and I will email you uh, the s- Leatherface sonnets, which are part of my new book coming out this fall, The National Gallery. So you can get a sample 
uh, from the National Gallery, which is a bunch of sonnets about Leatherface <laughs> and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Some of, uh, I think, the best writing I've done uh, for a while and something I'm really excited about in this new book. Um, so uh, I'd love to share that with you. Just go check it out uh, after you listen to the lecture. Uh, thanks very much. So the title for my talk is Let Us Revel in Blood and Glory and Death. <laughs> and uh, the reason I have that title is uh, because uh, one day I want to write a book about horror with that title. But uh, also that, to me, summarizes the ethos of true uh, radical horror. And I think horror is interesting to write, talk about and, and think about, even if you don't care about horror and if you don't plan to write horror. Uh, but as a writer, I think uh, the ethos of horror, strangely, is the best ethos for art. And again, I'll summarize the ethos now, which will make more sense later. Let us revel in blood and glory and death. <laughs> so horror at its core, to me, uh, is a disturbing genre, a brutal type of writing, and I believe it should be the model for all writing. So I'm going to kind of make a strange, circuitous argument uh, towards that. Uh, I consider horror, I'm just going to talk about horror broadly uh, first. I consider horror to fall into two broad categories. Uh, the first and largest is what I like to call reactionary horror, which is a conservative uh, story structure that is what most academics talk about when they talk about horror. Uh, in reactionary horror, again, what I call reactionary horror, the monster is a warning and a punishment for sin. Reactionary horror, despite its surface appearances, is often a deeply moralistic uh, type of writing and is a conservative in the sense that it is about preserving current values or reviving older values. Uh, so it's a bit of traditionalist genre in that sense, even though on the surface, like I say, it may be seem very s disturbing and subversive and against, uh, you know, against societal values. Uh, we should not stay up late or the boogeyman will get us. We should not genetically engineer animals or we will create monstrous beasts. Uh, we should not commit suicide or we'll become vampires. That's the original way you became a vampire in folklore, which people forget now. Uh, we should not have sex outside of marriage or the slasher killer will hunt us down. So to me, this is, again, the kind of structural message that I'm talking about when I talk about reactionary horror. Uh, now, these are simple examples, but there are more complicated examples of reactionary horror. And although I call it reactionary uh, and suggest that it's structured by a conservative impulse, I want to acknowledge that there's a dark, disturbing, radical idea at the heart of even the most conservative horror, which is this, the fundamental thematic notion that we deserve to die. We genetically modified those tomatoes, and therefore, we deserve to die at their hands. Yeah. That last example does sound ridiculous, but often the logic of horror is that joke logic. Uh, the monster as a punishment is often a massive overreaction to the story that the story nonetheless treats as sensible within the story's world. Do those teens really deserve to die because they had sex in the woods? Well, in the logic of the slasher film, yes. The logic of horror is a symbolic, poetic logic. In Stephen King's short story, The Lawnmower Man, the protagonist deserves to die because he didn't mow his lawn. By not mowing his lawn, he has violated the laws of the suburbs and is a bad American, and for this he deserves to die. <laughs> and King, by the way, in that particular story, he's very aware of the kind of periodic uh, approach he's taking. Uh, various structural elements are almost always true in reactionary horror. Uh, the monster comes from outside, uh, an element of chaos that disrupts the ordered world. Its very presence is destabilizing and threatens to tear that world apart. 
and it must be gotten rid of so that the order can be reestablished and reaffirmed. Herein lies the fundamental conservatism of most horror. The monster threatens traditional values that the story's world is built upon, and a happy ending, you know, whatever that may be in horror, <laughs> requires getting rid of the monster and reaffirming those values. For this reason, a lot of horror is culturally specific and is often morally abhorrent, uh, even though it positions itself as moralistic. And Bram Stoker's Dracula is an example I like to use, uh, you know, something people know by reputation but often haven't read. Um, and if you read Bram Stoker's Dracula, it's fundamentally a story about how immigrants are monsters. Uh, Dracula is meant to be frightening because he's an immigrant with money. and social status, he would therefore be free, which, of course, to, to you know, an Englishman of the time is horrible. Again, culturally specific, what we might view from the outside of that culture uh, in that time period is morally reprehensible. Now, maybe Dracula is not frightening to us in this way, but he's meant to be. Uh, he spends a lot of time trying to learn to speak English without an accent and memorize the train schedules. Dracula's stated goal in the novel is to be able to walk around England and pass as a native Englishman. This idea that there might be no perceivable difference between a foreigner and a native-born Englishman, and thus possibly no meaningful difference, uh, is a fundamental violation of the British class system of the time, and even to some degree today, and in many ways is why Dracula is meant to be monstrous. Monsters are always abnormal and transgressive. Uh, their abnormality often makes them transgressive, giving them power to violate the categories that constrain the rest of us. This is why they are agents of chaos and why they are dangerous, because they threaten order by simply existing, by being there. The monster is abnormal, a thing that should not be, and is transgressive, doing things it should not do. And last but not least, it is symbolic of a fate worse than death. In other genres, uh, death is the worst fate that can befall a character often, but in the horror genre, death is usually the best thing that can happen to a character, a mercy. Fear in horror stems from the fate worse than death, whatever fate the monster delivers or represents, which may also include death, of course. Uh, often this takes the form of the monster breeding monsters, turning its victims into replicates of itself. This process of monstrosity being the fate worse than death. Now, this odd double status of many monsters offers a weird opening for a more radical strain of horror. Monsters are the worst possible of things and powerful things, but because they are powerful, they are attractive. And their monstrosity is paradoxically sometimes also a weakness that allows them to be pitied in particular ways. Uh, now, what interests me most is this more radical strain of horror uh, that I'm going to talk about next. In radical horror stories, or what I call again, radical horror, I like to just use the two R's positioned against one another, uh, but in a more radical horror story, everything at first seems to be unfolding according to the usual patterns, but reaches a point where a reversal takes place. The monsters seem to have come from outside, but then we discover they were here all along. The monster appears to transgress and violate order, but then we realize that this order was illusory, Often, this world we believe to be ordered is found to be built on chaos, a structure designed to contain and repress that chaos that the monster represents. But the monster, immortal, rises to destroy this structure, to tear apart our world, because the monster in radical horror is the truth. In radical horror, the monster still symbolizes a fate worse than death, but this fate is the loss of reality, or at least what we once took for reality. 
Acknowledging the truth is a fate worse than death because it destroys us conceptually and completely, reshaping our identities and our perceptions. The purest form of radical horror is cosmic, although the scale of the story might be smaller than that. Uh, this is the difference between you know, Cthulhu and Satan. You know, Satan, the adversary, confirms God's existence. Evil might defeat good in the story, or threaten to, but good is there. Good is real and meaningful. The cosmos has an order, even if that order is threatened by violation and annihilation. But Cthulhu is not evil. Cthulhu is beyond good and evil, making meaningless the very concepts. Uh, a Christian god or a demonic Satan may or may not actually exist in Cthulhu's world. Uh, in that universe, but it doesn't matter because neither represent anything that matters in the face of the great old ones, who are the only truly sublime creatures in an infinite universe that is not even large enough to contain them. But the most subversive and radical horror uh, classic to me, in my view, is not Lovecraft's work, but Tobey Hooper's. Uh, the plot's scale is much smaller, but the malevolence of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, to me, outscales anything that Lovecraft conceived. In Lovecraft, for all of the surface radicality, we are on the side of humans against monsters, or at least in an uncomfortable position of hating both humans and monsters. Uh, we are invited to view the impossible beasts with horror, uh, but in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, something much darker takes place. Uh, there's a bizarre formal logic, a uh, formal moment in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where we find ourselves alone with Leatherface. This is a fundamental break in the pattern that the film otherwise observes, and that these kinds of films generally, as a rule, often strictly observe. The formula uh, of this sort of film goes like this. We follow a group of characters that splinter. One by one, they fall a victim. As each breaks away from the pack, the camera follows them, and broadly speaking, the camera stays with them, and they are the focus of its frame, and then the killer enters the frame. The killer does what a killer does best. Uh, when they die, the film cuts back to the group or to the next victim. We follow the next victim in the same way until you know they're dispatched. Eventually, the final victim becomes the focus of the film, and then she kills the killer. But in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, there's a segment after Leatherface murders the third victim, who, like the others, has entered Leatherface's house, where the camera stays on Leatherface for quite a while. It does not cut away. He flails around the house looking for more intruders. When he doesn't find them, he looks out the window into the yard. He sees no one. He sits and he worries, doing whatever passes for thinking in Leatherface's brain. Then we return to the normal formal pattern. The next time we see Leatherface is outside of the house. We can piece together in retrospect what has happened. Leatherface's point of view, from Leatherface's point of view, this house is an ordered universe. Then something comes from outside. Now, when I teach the film, I, by the way, I like to point out that due to stand your ground laws, uh, much of what Leatherfaces does would be legal in Texas today. <laughs> uh, but I just got to come back to the argument. So this, this little like shift uh, where we're kind of sitting with Leatherface for a little bit, and then we kind of in, later on can piece together his thought process uh, of whatever that means. Uh, this is not a simple shift in perspective to me. Uh, what we're asked to do here is not understand Leatherface's point of view, uh, Leatherface is still a void behind his masks. He's a non-face inside of stolen faces, a sublime, unknowable, incomprehensible monster. But we are with him, not with the others. We're not with his victims. 
We're somewhere in between, and we're being asked, implicitly asked, to make a decision about where we will stand from here on out. Now, it's worth noting that earlier in the film, one of the killers, this hitchhiker, uh, from the, one of the killers from the cannibal family, talks about the slaughterhouse where the family used to work. The characters discuss how head cheese is made uh, out of meat jelly from the flesh of a cow's head. One of the women in the van is disgusted, uh, and her male friend points out that she'd like it if she didn't know what was in it. She dismisses his comment. Uh, later on, the same characters stop at a gas station and buy some sausage for a snack. They eat the sausage on the road. Much later, we discover that the same gas station is owned by the cannibal family. And we can do the math. Prior to being murdered and turned into meat, these victims happily, though unknowingly, became cannibals themselves. But they can hardly be blamed for it, uh, and neither can Leatherface. The whole family worked in the slaughterhouse, but was laid off when the slaughterhouse shut down. They are still doing now what they were doing then, only they don't see a difference between humans and cows. They don't see a difference between the inside of a slaughterhouse and the outside, the whole world outside. Leatherface doesn't even see a difference between his own face and the skin of another person's face. These are their transgressions, but are they wrong? The story does everything in its power to suggest that they are not wrong. Leatherface is the monster, but the monster is the truth. The slaughterhouse is wrong. The slaughterhouse is a lie, so it died. The truth is that slaughter is not confined. The universe is a slaughterhouse. The universe is a slaughterhouse, and Leatherface, despite his name, despite his multiple masks, has no face, because humans, like cows, are just meat, indistinguishable from the others in the herd, their private selves totally meaningless. This is the truly dark suggestion of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of this story. Leatherface is its only character, the only person who could be considered anyone precisely because he is no one, because humans are nothing. The story asks us to accept this, uh, to accept these various truths that its monsters represent. You know, in the story's world, this is the truth. Going back to Lovecraft, uh, I think we find in the history of horror a really interesting object, this monstrous object uh, that recurs in multiple stories, the book of impossible knowledge. This is going to seem like a bit of a tangent, but I'm going to kind of bring it back. Um, the most famous incarnation uh, of the Book of Impossible Knowledge is, of course, you know, Lovecraft's Necronomicon. Uh, but we see it in other examples. Robert W. Chambers is The King in Yellow. Uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, even, you know, if you want to move back to film and to postmodern metafictions. Uh, these monstrous books realize the impossible dream of literature to fully and completely capture the truths of the world in language so powerful and so perfect that the book itself would transform the reader. Now, just come back to Leatherface. Leatherface and his cannibal family, we should also remember, are creators, artists. Their home has been decorated with furniture made from bones, lampshades made from flesh, and even odd objects that have no utilitarian purpose and must therefore be construed as artworks, like a clock with a nail through its face. The film also opens with a sculpture that the hitchhiker has made out of corpses, like some nightmare mirror version of Rilke's archaic torso of Apollo. But if we just jump back now, I'm going to kind of cross-cutting here a bit, jump back to the book of impossible knowledge, the cursed book that drives its readers to madness by revealing to them the truth. We don't see that in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but we see it in other horror stories. These books are monstrous, and they're authored by monsters uh, and transform their readers into monsters. We see analogs in horror film also. The film in the ring is uh, an example, maybe. 
Uh, in this respect, horror has produced many of these meta-monsters that mirror cultural fears about horror stories themselves. There's something wrong with these stories, uh, goes you know, the cultural anxiety. There's something wrong with their authors, something wrong with their readers. They are abnormal. They're transgressive. They will transform you. They will take away the things you believe, a fate worse than death. In horror stories, it's often precisely for this reason, by the way, that characters die. They cannot believe in the reality of the monster. It's by definition impossible inside of their ideas about reality. They must get rid of the monster, deny its reality, or jettison it from reality, or give up their own reality. Uh, in radical horror, uh, they give up their reality. In these stories, nothing is less real than reality. But even in reactionary horror, the more conservative strain, often characters die because they cannot fathom the monster's existence. They keep finding corpses drained of blood with what looks like bite marks on their necks, and they have no idea what could be happening. It's as if they've never read a vampire novel. Or somebody mentions vampires, but of course, they all know that vampires aren't real. And we'll often say that. Almost every horror story with vampires, somebody says, well, vampires aren't real. Uh, and you, know, you have well, a lot of the ridiculous cliches of horror are actually explained in this way. You know, people are running up the stairs. They're just like walking, like, well, I'll split up. <laughs> just making stupid decisions that, of course, it, they're dumb to us because we know what's real as an outside participant you know, viewing the, we've read, uh, you know, we know what the movie's called Zombie Nightmare 6 or something, right? So there's zombies in it. But the characters don't know that. They can't, by definition, accept that uh, until it's too late. Um, characters will deny the vampires are real in these stories, even when the vampire is sucking their blood, because it is better to die than to accept that they were wrong about vampires. Better to die than live in the world where monsters exist. I think, as I'm going to get to, there's a disturbing parallel here with how people in the social world act. Uh, of course, only if they accept this new reality, that they are living in the world of the monster, can they survive. If you find yourself in a horror story, your only hope is to let hope die and accept that the horror is happening. Uh, in Hitchcock's Psycho, we suffer a moment similar to that moment in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, after we followed Marion Crane for the first part of the film, who we should remember is the film's main character. We meet Norman Bates. Uh, the two talk. Afterward, Marion retires to her room, but the camera stays with Norman, a fundamental break in the film's formal pattern up to that point. Before this point, we've been following Marion. Norman takes down a painting to reveal a peephole, and he looks inside. The film cuts to a point of view shot where we occupy Norman's perspective, and we watch Marion undress. Then later, when the murder takes place, after the killer has fled, Marion lies dying on the bathtub. She is slumped to the ground, and she raises up her arm, reaching for us. The camera pans to reveal she's actually reaching for the shower curtain uh, to try to pull herself up. But in that split second, before we know what she's doing, it truly does seem like she's reaching out to us for help. But we don't help her. We just watch. The killer left the room, but we stayed behind to watch her die. Psycho, I think, is ultimately a very reactionary story, although it's formally quite radical. You know, name another movie that murders its main character after investing 47 minutes into her story. Uh, a story in which nearly every plot thread then gets cut and rendered utterly meaningless. Uh, but similarly, uh, Psycho asks us to position ourselves between the killer and his victim and decide where we will stand. 
In cycle, because it's reactionary, the correct choice is clear, eventually. We must pick the side of the victim, of the human, because the nature of Norman's mental illness effectively renders it into a ghost story, a possession. Uh, however, Norman as Norman, not mother, offers us a strange point of possible identification that introduces a real radicality in the film. Because remember, if we were, you know, not now, but at the time watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's a mystery who knows who the killer is. Uh, we don't know when we see Norman that he's a killer, as we do, of course, even if we haven't seen the film now. Uh, after Marion is dead, it's worth pointing out, we have another kind of strange formal uh, moment. The camera does not know what to do uh, now that it has lost the story's protagonist. It floats through the empty hotel room, looking for something to look at. Finally, Norman enters the room, and the camera latches onto him. And next, we watch as Norman discovers Marion's body and then cleans the room. It's a lengthy sequence where we literally watch Norman clean up the blood, removing all traces of the crime in this drawn-out scene that conventionally is precisely the kind of scene that is normally covered by an ellipsis. Uh, Hitchcock makes us watch this long scene of mundane action that typically we would understand had happened but never see in a more normally structured film. All this time, we're with Norman like we were with Leatherface, uh, but it's, we've by this time seen both positions, you know, killer and victim, and we're being asked to choose in a certain way, but it's less radical choice, I think, because we don't actually, we shouldn't uh, yet know that Norman is the killer. Uh, we're just viewing him as a victim of another sort or an accomplice uh, of, of sorts. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, by contrast, asks us to choose clearly the side of the monster because whether we like it or not, the monster is the truth. We don't have to go start cannibalizing people <laughs> because that's not what this film is about. It's about admitting that we don't matter to the world. I want to just argue that this is precisely the position we need to occupy if we want to survive this world. For example, if we want to have any hope of surviving climate change. We must give up our illusions that we have destiny and we will somehow be saved, that our death is not coming. One of my students once observed that horror stories thematically seem to boil down to a single three-word fear. We are wrong. Uh, alongside this, of course, we find another three-word lesson, death is coming. I would expand things slightly. Uh, the ethos of horror to me is a strange, twisted, but ultimately necessary ethos akin to Elaine Badu's fidelity to the event. We are wrong and so deserve to die but instead of denying this, we should revel in blood and glory and death. Stephen King once said, I've always strived to hurt the reader. I think that a book should be something that's really alive and really dangerous in a lot of ways. Ironically, this is really true of King's works, but I think it is a good goal for horror and even more broadly for writing in a general sense. Writing at its best, I think, is a monstrous thing. It's abnormal and rare, and it transgresses boundaries, doing a symbolic violence to our received ideas, delivering them to a fate worse than death. The monstrous book of impossible knowledge that horror presents as its own meta-monster is, to me, the great goal of art. This is precisely what we need our writing to do, slaughter ourselves and their concepts in service of a ruthless, transformative truth if we want to survive the world. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to read a sonnet by leather, about Leatherface here. Uh, again, I've got a whole bunch of these Leatherface sonnets if you want to go you know, to jonathanmullet.com slash Leatherface. Um, but this is from Leatherface Retrospective. This is a series of sonnets in a book I've got coming out this fall, which is each sonnet kind of precedes 
uh, as an ekphrastic poem, you know, a poem about an art object where you describe something. Uh, so this poem describes uh, and meditates on the corpse sculpture that opens the film, the Rilkean uh, corpse sculpture. Uh, and so it begins with the line from Rilke. We cannot know his legendary face with eyes that stare through other eyes, fruit fleshing ripe before its noble fall. We see what someone sought to see in flashes, flesh falling from bone, waxy and wet, worm melted in a crucible of earth. Come from below, O corpse of corpses, with your hands hold another's head high, and help me, help hold my attention fast to flesh and far from graves. In the background, these cold stones speak the true terror, to be ageless, immortal, and here. To be not, to be, come closer. Thank you very much.